Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week my guest is a welcome back to science fiction author, Darren Beyer. Darren, welcome back. Thanks, John. It's great to be back with you. For the listeners, uh, Darren is a former NASA space shuttle engineer at Kennedy Space Center who worked on launching and recovering more than a dozen missions, including the Hubble Space Telescope. You also conducted astronaut training and had uh, the honor of working on on board every space shuttle orbiter except Challenger. In late 1998, you left NASA to become an entrepreneur and lately a sci-fi author. The first result was the Angazi series of novels, Casimir Bridge, released in 2016 to rave reviews, thanks largely to your commitment to putting the science back in science fiction. Yay! The second installment, Pathogen Protocol, was released in October of 2018. And you first appeared on Background Mode in November 2018. We had a great talk, but there was so much left unspoken. I've invited you back for an encore visit to wrap up some of the details and have further discussions about all sorts of cool stuff. So, you ready to go? Absolutely. All right, in the first show, we had a brief discussion about your life and times at NASA, and you told an interesting astronaut story. But you have more stories to tell us, and I'm intrigued. I want to hear more. Sure. So, you know, I mean, I guess I'd start by saying that I think I had the coolest job you could possibly have in NASA. <laughs> and it was, uh, I think I mentioned that the last time I was on. And, and, it is, and I'm not exaggerating in that because what had happened was back in the, you know, in the earliest days of NASA, they hired a bunch of engineers. Apollo came along. A ton more engineers got hired. Kennedy Spacer at the center at that time, I think, had about 30,000 employees, contractor and NASA combined. You know, today it's less than half of that. Uh, so a ton of, of people got hired on. And then everything sort of stopped after Apollo. And they uh, they ended up uh, going into the shuttle program. But there's a big lag. You know, sh- Apollo stopped in the early 70s. Shuttle didn't launch until early 80s or would really get into high gear until early 80s. And so they weren't hiring any engineers. And then you start progressing through the 80s. And a bunch of these engineers that were hired on in the 60s are starting to retire and then Challenger happened, and then there was a five-year, roughly five-year gap, and now all of these engineers retired. And so they wanted to get back to return to flight, but they realized, well, we've got to hire engineers. NASA's primarily an oversight agency, so we've got to hire people that are essentially fresh out of college or very young engineers who have no clue what they're doing, and they're going to oversee people who do. So they had to do something to sort of fix that, that thing, and what they ended up doing was creating this engineering organization they would do hands-on work. So we got trained in driving forklifts and upright tigers and turning torque wrenches and doing crane ops. And we had special dispensation from the union, so we could actually do that. And the idea was you'd rotate people through this every two or three years so that they'd get real hands-on experience working with space hardware and working on board the orbiters and that kind of thing. And then they'd rotate out, and then they could effectively oversee um, folks in other parts of the organization. The problem was that it was such a great place that nobody wanted to leave. So people would get in there. It was very coveted. I was very lucky to get in. Uh, and you just hang out the entire time and keep doing that same job. So it really didn't fulfill its its primary role. But what it did do was give a number of us a great, uh, you know, a really great place to work. Uh, and, you know, be, being a 20-something fresh out of college and being able to climb around spaceships uh, is is one of the, you know, great eras of my life. Did you get to meet many of the astronauts personally because of your job? Yeah, I, I did, you know, different different things. So we would, you know, one of the things we did, uh, you know, we would go in right before uh, launch. Um, so we, we did a couple of things. We were, we were in the experiment group. So any experiment that flew on the orbiter, uh, we would uh, sort of put together, test it, put it on board, test it again, 
make sure everything's working. We'd train the astronauts uh, on the uh, on the use. Uh, we'd also go on. We were the last people to go on right before launch, right before they put the the, the astronauts on board. We would go on. Uh, well, that's that's pretty serious. Critic. That's pretty serious stuff. Having to learn the ins and outs of a scientific experiment and then train the astronaut on how to conduct operations. That's yeah. heavy duty stuff. Yeah, because if you get it wrong, you don't get a second chance. You know, so you really had to make sure that uh, everything was done right. And we would go through and and we would. You know, essentially, it's not a whole lot to a lot of the experiments. You train the astronauts on how to open the doors and close the things and connect cables and that kind of – I mean, they obviously knew the basics of how to do that, but you'd want to make sure that they knew, you know, everything that was associated with it. The life science stuff was real fun. So, you know, again, would be out there that, you know, some of the fun ones were when the launch would be early morning or mid-morning and we'd be up there in the middle of the night, uh, you know, and the lights are shining up at the orbiter <laughs> on the path. Going up did, to the, did you have to worry about center of gravity since where you had multiple payloads? Um, I mean, so we never did those calculations, right? I mean, obviously that does come into play. It's fundamentally mm. no different than, you know, loading up an aircraft. Yeah. Uh, you know, making sure that your your weight and balance is correct, uh, and that was a consideration. So you know, we'd be putting uh, experiments in the mid deck of the orbiter, which is sort of where the crew hatch is. The command deck is above it. Flight deck's above it. And so we'd, there are these lockers in the front, and we'd put those in there, and those were – you had to make sure that the weight was just right, because if you're off by just a little bit, uh, you know, you start to throw things out of balance. Cool, cool. Well, tell me some more interesting stories. Oh, man. I mean, you know, we had we had a ton of them. Um, you know, my uh, – uh, one of my favorites was um, – although not, it wasn't a great outcome, and it wasn't even the space shuttle, but we were – we were walking back from lunch. You know, they have cafeterias there. Everything's sort of self-contained on the space center. We're walking back from the from the uh, another building to ours at lunch, and there happened to be a Delta launch going off. And we're like, oh, let's stop and watch it. And the Delta pad, unlike the shuttle, which the closest you can be for a shuttle launch is about five miles. Uh, there are a few that are places that are a little bit closer than that, but but for the most part, you're five miles five, away. Is that is that range safety and uh, don't want to blow out your eardrums and both? <laughs> um, I mean, the eardrums thing isn't as much of an issue. It's, it's range safety primarily and then security, right? You don't want too many people getting too close. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and although I, you know, I will say, like, there's there's nothing like watching the, the shuttle launch. And then what would happen is you know, it would go up and it turns out over the ocean. And so the, 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 the solid rockets and the main engines are sort of facing back at you, sort of blowing back at you. Mm-hmm. And there's there's nothing quite like it. Like, you, you hear this crackling. I mean, the... the Air just is. I've heard that popping on television. It must be incredible yeah, I mean, just, in person. Well, and the, the other thing is, like your shirt, you know, thumps against your chest. I mean, you can feel <laughs> the, the, the the percussion coming from those engines, and it's and it's miles away, right? Um, and so it, it is, you know, really something to behold. And you know, and the, the 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 expendable launch vehicles are, you know, they're not quite as dynamic, but but still a lot of fun to watch. So we were going to stop and watch this thing, and it's. You're a lot closer to these to these things. You can actually get within like a mile to a mile and a half of the launch pads. And we were at our building. I think it was like a couple miles away, if I remember correctly. And the thing goes up and like clears the launch pad by, you know, maybe 100 feet or something like that. And then just obliterated. Just this is the Delta. Yeah, this is a Delta one. And you can look it up on, on YouTube. It's a spectacular explosion. And, and then the Delta is, you know, it's got a liquid... Uh, uh, fuel center engine, but all the, uh, the they have these extra sort of pods that go around the outside of that are yeah. small solid rocket things. Well, solid rocket fuel, you don't just turn it off. When it starts burning, 
it keeps burning until it's gone. It's powdered aluminum, it's, I heard. Yeah, it's well, aluminum oxide essentially is, is yeah. what's in the in the solid. Yeah. And so so the thing it blows up, well the solids just got obliterated and there's these huge chunks of solid fuel that are flying out in all directions. Oh, no. And you know, we we ducked for cover. They didn't get it didn't get quite close enough to us to, to to you know make put us in danger, but we were running and ducking for cover. But it was spectacular. And my favorite thing about it uh, was the the woman who was calling the launch. Um, you know, so, you know, she's calling you know Delta. We have liftoff, and then there's this big boom, right? And and everything's gone. <laughs> Looks like a massive Roman candle going off. And she says, "We have had an." anomaly <laughs> like yeah that's a uh, that's a little bit of an understatement that's the uh, low-key I mean, gene kranz uh, yeah. approach <laughs> yeah i mean you know i mean you want to talk about the really cool things that you do you know on day in and day out but that is the one thing just because you're so not expecting especially the delta is a very reliable <laughs> vehicle so you just didn't expect it to happen not and certainly not most mishaps don't happen right there like they'll happen you're up in you're way up in the atmosphere and you get a wobble or or something and it goes off track and they have to detonate. This was an, a totally un you know there was nothing there was giving away the fact that this thing was just going to torch off at, at 100 feet up, up above the tower. But highly recommend do a search for Delta you know launch tower explosion something like that and you'll find the videos of this and it's definitely worth watching. You mentioned that there was a gap between the Apollo program and the space shuttle program. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary uh, here on July 20th of uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon July 20th, 1969, 50 years. I was in the bookstore the other day, uh, Barnes & Noble, and I saw a whole bunch of books celebrating Apollo, Apollo 8, Apollo 11, Apollo 13, the Apollo program in general, a whole bunch of new books published. And there's been some movies. Uh, I watched um, Ryan Gosling and First Man a while back. What did you think of that? Yeah, that's a. I mean, I think that's right in line with um, with the Apollo thirteen uh, movie as far as realism is concerned. I think Ryan Gosling was a great actor uh, to portray Neil Armstrong. So wonderful, wonderfully well done, very technically accurate. I still like Apollo thirteen better. Um, I think that I don't know. There's just something about the inherent sort of tension that was present sure, in Apollo sure. thirteen that makes it a much more compelling movie. And of course, it's Tom Hanks and. And, and he and Ron Howard, and I was there, by the way, at the Space Center when they were, they filmed part of it. They're not a ton at the Space Center, but some of it. And they were doing touring facilities, and we got to meet them during that, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but, it's, but the, you know, they, they pay such a close attention to detail in that, uh, in Apollo 13, that I still think, better movie, lo- like it better. But, but the uh, first man was, was very, very well done, and it's one of those movies that, you know, that is a kind that you just kind of keep watching over and over again. One of the things that intrigued me about First Man was uh, Ryan Gosling's portrayal of Neil, of Neil Armstrong. Instead of false bravado and antics and, uh, and uh, sort of full excitement, there was this portrayal of a man who was quiet, thoughtful, thought things through, was calm in a crisis. They went through the Agena spin thing and the... Uh, test vehicle, the uh, little limb lander simulator that he ejected out of. And you have to have a certain frame of mind, sort of an engineering mentality, and not too excitable, not too nervous. And uh, I thought Ryan played a, a, a brilliant role in, in sort of portraying a quiet, thoughtful, taciturn engineer. 
Yeah, and, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, I think the especially in the early days when you had a lot of the astronauts were fighter pilots, uh, and there's a certain, you know, there's a certain sort of attitude and persona that goes with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that Top that attitude, yeah. Yeah, maybe not quite that far, but not too far off. Uh, <laughs> you, know, it, you, you saw some of that on display in The Right Stuff, which was another wonderful movie, of course. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, you get some of that. I didn't see much of that at all. Uh, I mean, I, I, I saw – I think these days it's a very different uh, situation. You, you don't have nearly as many – folks that are that are um, coming out of the military that are astronauts they're still obviously like, still quite a few but the folks that do do tend to be more the engineer type and less the you know fighter pilot type it was I think, mm-hmm. a totally different era they were looking for totally different sets of people by the way i've never met an astronaut who i don't think would be calm under fire i think they're that's part of their they they're you know the part of the, the criteria right you just have to be yeah they go through uh, a battery of psychological tests yeah, uh, so I've never never met one that I did, wouldn't you know inherently trust with, with doing the right thing. But uh, you know, I met John Glenn, and um, you know, very similar. I mean, very quiet, very taciturn, mm-hmm. um, really interesting guy, very very thoughtful and caring guy. I mean, when when I met him, he was doing um, uh, sort of these one on ones with kids um, that were you know a lot of young young girls uh, who had their eyes on becoming, you know, either astronauts or working in the space program. And he was having these individual one-on-one talks with them. Uh, you know, and you don't ex- sort of expect that out of astronaut folks, right? So, I mean, it's just out of the persona and, and, that, and there he was, I mean, not just a, you know, not just an astronaut legend, but you know, he, I mean, talk about, he was a fighter pilot. He didn't carry that same sort of persona. He's right? he a cross country speed record in a jet fighter. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he was, you know, as an ace and, and, uh, World War II, he flew P-51s. I mean, the guy, you know, just just nuts, right? Like how uh, how great an individual Yeah, well, they have uh, to be was. ambassadors, too, you know, in addition to their flying and all the training they have to do and the study and the prep. It's good when they're ambassadors. It inspires a whole generation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in this one, this young girl had done a painting of him and presented it to him, and, you know, he's just so gracious about it. So, uh, you know, like I really appreciated. I got to meet... Uh, Buzz Aldrin. I got to meet um, um, a number of different, uh, uh, you know, some of the some of the legendary folks from the space program. There were there was a lot of fun, and those were you know coming in sort of after the fact. And then a lot of the astronauts during training uh, that we got to meet, uh, you know, mostly it wasn't the commanders, the military types, because they weren't really involved in the scientific aspects. So mostly it was more of the scientific community folks that that I would interact with on a more you know, unlike the John Glenn stuff, which it was more, I was there sort of as a chaperone for the, for the kids, but, but it was more, uh, you know, more folks on the, um, on the scientific side, uh, that I interacted with and we did our training and, and again, all of them, you know, su- obviously super smart, uh, very even keeled, uh, and I would inherently trust any one of them to do what, what needed to be done. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Darren, we have to take a short break right now in the second half. Next up. We'll be talking about Mars and moon exploration and uh, interstellar travel. But first, we have to take a short commercial break. Folks, we'll be right back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. I'm talking to science fiction author, former NASA engineer, Darren Beyer. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. 
If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thanks. We're back. I'm chatting with science fiction author Darren Beyer. So last time we were talking, I think we nibbled a little bit about the perpetual issue of do we go back to the moon in a big effort or do we go to Mars and just forget the moon, been there, done that? It's a big topic and it's raged for 40 years. Yeah, um, I'm a pretty strong moon uh, proponent. Uh, I think that it makes a lot more sense. I think I think if we go for Mars, it's sort of like building a house on a bad, bad foundation. Eventually, you, you got to build the foundation. You got to put it up. Uh, it, it's you, so you get there, you do it. It's gonna it would be wonderful. It'd be a, a heck of an achievement. I think you'd get um, you know you'd probably generate a lot of enthusiasm around space uh, travel and space exploration. But there's no foundation to do anything else after that, or very limited foundation. I think by going to the moon and establishing a base on the moon, you're more easily able to uh, create things in orbit. There's a lot of resources on the moon. Uh, there's there's now you know obviously they've come out you know and said there's a fair amount of water deposits on the moon. Nine billion for, metric tons at the South Pole, I'm told. Yeah, a, a lot, right? <laughs> I mean. Plenty to power a lot, lot of hydrogen uh, or get lots of hydrogen to you know, power spacecraft. Yeah. So I think it makes a lot of sense to build a facility on the moon that can gather up resources, create certain components. I mean, you could build 3D printers using moon materials to, uh, to create items that you could launch off the moon into, uh, you know, into orbit around the moon. Lots well, of solar power. Just let's spread, spread solar cells out for miles. Well, and if you, and the nice thing is, if you put it at certain parts of the moon, um, there's no, uh, there's there's a perpetual sun, right? You could you could have places where, cold, right, where you've got perpetual um, uh, sunlight, and of course there's no clouds or storms or anything to worry about. So, uh, you'd be constantly producing that, and uh, and then you you know we've talked before about you know you could have things like a big massive mass driver. I mean, it could be a track. I did some calculations and. You could do a you know a track that's probably thirty kilometers long, uh, accelerating it at you know roughly nine or ten g's along that length, and get things into orbit around the moon without having any sort of propellants. That could all be electrically powered electromagnetics. To How do high is that track at the endpoint where the vehicle leaves the track? Oh, it doesn't have to be high at all. I mean, it, that's the beauty about the moon. Just accelerate There's no in vacuum with a slight up tilt, right? That, that's right. I mean, all, all it needs to do is be able to get to that escape velocity. It's not going to um, you know, it's not going to uh, uh, be slowing down like it would in Earth's atmosphere because there's nothing to stop it. So it just has to you have a slight uptick on it. Doesn't it wouldn't have to be very high, and the thing just would would accelerate along. It hits that escape velocity, and it's going to uh, put itself into orbit. So what you're proposing is that um, we use solar cells to separate hydrogen and oxygen from the ice at the poles, accelerate it into orbit, and there's fuel in orbit around the moon. 
and then a Mars mission could stop by and say, hi, we're checking in refueling. Yeah, fuel and oxygen, by the way. So it's not just the fuel part. But by the way, I, I, I wrote a blog post about this, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, uh, I'm sure, because I wrote it a number of years ago. But if I remember correctly, it was something like 94% of the mass that's used to, uh, to, to launch something into orbit is around supporting structure and, and liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, with the vast majority being liquid oxygen. So the, the, the biggest chunk by a long shot of the mass that you launch off the Earth to get something into orbit is the oxidizer, the liquid oxygen used to get it into orbit. You don't have any of that. You don't have the fuel. You don't have the oxidizer. Uh, you don't have anything except the payload that you'd be launching off the uh, off the moon. And you can again do that via right. uh, electric uh, by magnetics, by electro electromagnetics to accelerate it down. Real gun. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. By the way, solar is one way to go. I'm a huge proponent. By the way, of fusion power. I think that. We're getting close to having realistic fusion energy when that happens. I'm hoping it happens soon enough to uh, have, an, have a dent on the climate impact that our, you know fossil fuels are doing uh, because it's a clean energy. It's a safe energy. Uh, but a fusion power is one of these things that could revolutionize what we do. And, and just putting a small fusion power plant on the moon would do everything you need it to do. Let me ask you about something else that just came to mind. Uh, there was a National Geographic series that's run the last two years called Just Mars, and it's about the building of a Martian colony. And there's about maybe 50 or 100 people in this colony, and then it's also being industrialized. There's a mining operation going on looking for, I think, underground water. And the science people were having a little tussle with the, uh, with the uh, consumer side, the industrialists. But it's a very interesting series that depicts the challenges in the life and times of a evolving Martian colony, self-sustaining. But what's conspicuously absent in this National Geographic series is robot assistance. I've always had this pet theory that you know we need robots of the C-3PO variety, you know, androids to be partners and assist us with life on the Mars and the dangerous operations and and things like that. But we don't talk much about having robots as companions. Is that something we should wait for until we can have virtually have a, a cast of C-3PO's going with us? So, I mean, I don't know that you need to wait for that. And by the way, I think that, that science fiction as an entire genre um, misses out on that. Uh, you know, even, even you mentioned C-3PO, even the relatively large presence of, of robotic you know, droids in, in Star Wars was was small uh, in comparison to what what it really will be. I mean, think about where we are today on Earth with robotic uh, entities in general. So you've we're got, getting there, uh, not quite. Yeah, we're getting, you know, self-driving cars are going to have you know the drones, uh, you know, et cetera. Like so, uh, anything we do in space, whether it's on the moon, uh, in orbit somewhere around something, or on Mars or whatever it is, is going to be massively robotic driven. Yeah. The, the issue is with science fiction is that's not really exciting. I mean, you need tension, right? <laughs> you need something that, that, <laughs> that human brings component. the viewer or the reader or whatever in. And, and having a bunch of robots kind of boringly going around doing tasks is not exactly something that's, uh, that's exciting to, uh, to, to consume as a, as a sci-fi There sci might be person. a temptation to have robots gone wrong. 
Well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's already been a, a pretty pretty significant trope in sci-fi. Yeah. The, the whole Alien series, which is one of my favorite. I was watching it again this weekend, by the way. It was on one of the channels. What was? Uh, you know, the Aliens, uh, uh, Alien series. Uh-huh. Uh, one of my favorites. So I was watching that. But that's you know that, that trope is there, too. Uh, so, you know, there's um, there's a there. But, but it, by and large, they, they're not. Uh, nearly as omnipresent as they will be for all the stuff we're going to do. Because it just takes a huge chunk of the risk out of it, right? Yeah. So next part, um, bring us up to date on your work on the Casimir Bridge novels. You told me before uh, that you uh, had a change of plans and that you had some uh, ideas about how to expand the series. Yeah, so one of the most interesting things, um, it's, it's in our nature as writers to want to I'm going to use the word tell the story. Of course, we're telling a story because we're putting words on a page and, and that's telling a story. But to really tell the backstory, it's such it, there's this pull to be able to to want to get out what is in your brain about the entire backstory of the universe that you're writing in. And you can't do that because that that is in the writing world is called the tell uh, that wall of text at the beginning of Star Wars was tell the first however many chapters at the beginning of Dune was a ton of tell, and it's exceedingly boring, and people don't want to read that stuff. They want to be told the story through dialogue and description, not through show me you know, what through a history book, yeah, right? Show me, show me. Uh, yeah, you know, t- you know, Tolkien was horrible about. I mean, as great as Tolkien was, he was horrible about that. He had a lot of tell in his in his novels, and uh, and so the problem with that is that it takes a lot more to weave it in without becoming tell. So to weave in what you want to put in behind things, it takes a tremendous amount of dialogue, so many more words and so much more description to be able to weave in these tidbits that slowly tell the story around behind what's going on. Yeah, it has to be done pretty carefully, I imagine, because if the uh, character in in the novel does too much obvious telling, it seems out of context with what they're doing. It shows. It just sticks out like a sore thumb, I would guess. Well, that's exactly it. And so what I found was, so the first book was never meant to have much of the backstory come out. It was meant to be a start to, to finish, you know, more sort of about people and what's going on uh, in, in the in the near term. And then in the second book, the plan was to just, you know, get out all of the backstory in the second book. Uh, so that the third book could be around what's going to, how are you going to drive this to conclusion? And I got maybe 20% of the backstory out in the second book. I just couldn't weave in anymore. Mm. And so I was, I was going to have to put a bunch of it out in the third. And there was like, no way I was going to be able to get it all out in the third. So I said, I've got to have a fourth. And I started writing the third book and I was like, I can't do a fourth. But then what I had this really interesting epiphany, which was, you know what? I don't need all of the stuff to come out of this because I'm planning a prequel and I'm planning a sequel. So I can leave some ambiguity in there that will come out in those future series and let the you know the readers that continue on will get the full story on it. So I brought it back to three books and I'm just going to leave a lot of stuff untold because uh, I just don't see any other way around it. And, and by the way, the reason I'm bringing back to the three books for all of you budding authors out there, uh, I was told this and I and I dismissed it that writing a series as your first book out the gate is a tough thing to do it's exceedingly difficult to do i should have listened to the advice and written a one-off book <laughs> and gone into a series it's very very difficult well, you got lucky because your books were very well received and very well but i also took you know I'm, I'm now 15 years and counting you know in in getting just the second book out so 
I mean, you know, it's you know the first one was in sixteen, so you know they've only been out launched for for three years, but. But but it took me a long time leading up to get all the stuff right to make sure I'm laying the Easter eggs in the previous book <laughs> to be there throughout the series, and that's very difficult. I mean, it, as an example, I had an, an event take place in the first book that the reason for that event will not come to fruition until the very end of the last book, and it's relatively minor. It's just this cool scene that I envision, and so I wanted to play that back, and I actually laid that in the first book. So you have to have that entire thing played out. But more importantly, and a lot of people, there's a ton of people that are self-publishing. Uh, these days, and from this, and then these books are self-published. But I've got, you know, I'm in the in the works for for publishing traditional publishing the next. And the reason behind that is self-publishing is very very difficult. It's you know you you have to get make sure you get the right editors. You have to make sure you get the right developmental folks to help you out. The yeah. right cover, all of this stuff. That's difficult in itself to make sure that you're writing appropriately. But then beyond that, the most difficult of all of this is marketing. And it's a constant battle to be out there marketing your work so people know it's there. And that's what I found to be the, the toughest thing of all. And I'm frankly, I'm tired of it. Like, it, it's draining. I'm not a marketing person. I know enough about it from my product background that I can, you know, I can do it. But it is very, very difficult. And it, it's a hard path to go. So, um, I'm, you know, if I but I've got to finish this series as a self-published series. So I was like, I'm no way I'm going to four. I, I, can't, I can't continue to market, you know, self-market for a book. So I'm going to do it in three. Uh, and then the, you know, the, the, I haven't decided whether I'm going to do the prequel or the sequel next. Both really cool ideas. I'm really excited to, to get into those. But, but definitively, those will be um, traditionally uh, published books. I bet the listeners are dying to know how you write your content. Do you use Mac? Do you use Scrivener? Or word, or how do you do it mechanically? So I'm kind of old school. I mean, I've tried Scrivener. Um, what I, I think what I found was I was spending, although it's relatively easy, it's good, really good tool, and I know a lot of people like it. What I was finding, I was getting frustrated trying to just even spend that little bit of brain power to learn that tool versus I already know Word, and I knew that Scrivener would save me more time in the long run, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't do that. So I write in word. I, I kind of brute force it through, which is fine. It works, works fine. Scrivener has a lot of interesting tools that can help you with. Are you uh, a Mac or a PC guy? I'm a PC guy. Um, uh, I'm an Apple. I'm a, I'm an iPhone user, um, you know, for forever, but I've, I've been, a, I was a NASA didn't have Macs, right? So we got introduced to all our computers and, uh, they were all windows. And so everything I did, um, from my early days was windows and I could never make the switch. Well, we'll forgive you anyway. <laughs> there you go. We love your work. Um, in your novels, uh, you uh, we talked the other day about how you uh, accelerated the um, human prospects for for interstellar travel, and you had some ideas about how to explain uh, the leap so quickly into interstellar travel in your books. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's um, you know when you when you do things that are scientific when you're trying to build a scientifically correct technically correct piece of work you, you want to make sure you have a reason for everything happening and the books take place about a hundred years in the future and there's interstellar travel involved etc and I have a, I had a number of people ask me do you really think that we're going to be there in a hundred years and I was like no there's no way no possibility uh, and so they said well how can you justify this and I said well there, there's a reason for it in the books, but I actually ended up coming about this reason um, 
uh, by, you know, it, it became a hole that had to be filled in the plot. And this actually drove a significant chunk of the backstory. It's interesting how when you're developing the backstory, it, much of it comes out as a way to fill holes in certain things that you've developed. And so that was one of them. Uh, it combined with the fact that there's a, I'm not giving away too much of a spoiler. There's a, there's a mineral, a specific mineral that uh, powers interstellar travel, essentially, uh, that acts as sort of the fuel for it. And, uh, and it's not found anywhere except on one moon around Saturn. Well, how could that be? And I, and I, but I mentioned that in the first book, that you could go out to – there's an interview going on on TV. You could go out to any beach almost in the, in the world and pick up uh, a bunch of sand and probably find a speck of gold in it. But there's not a speck of this mineral. So why is that? Well, I had to come up with a reason for that. And that was all born by the fact that there was this special mineral. How could it not be there? I had to come up with a reason why it wasn't there. Is it used as reaction fuel? Because I don't know how much per fraction of a speed of light you can get to by throwing stuff out the back of your spaceship. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not. It's actually so the, the basic premise around it is uh, there there is a theory out there or a number of theories out there uh, that posit that wormholes exist naturally uh, in space. Ah. Uh, they just don't stay open very, very long because gravi- they suck in. It, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, but they really abhor this gravitational void. And so they, they close in on themselves very quickly. That's the theory. So I, I went off of that theory. And this particular mineral, they call it Hyperion because it was found on, on Saturn's moon of Hyperion. Uh, what it does is it uh, is a, has, has sort of a natural repellent force. And so it's able to sort of create this force, gravitational force, it pushes out against the walls of a wormhole. It forms oh. it and pushes out against the walls long enough for the entity that's within inside to traverse to the other side of the wormhole and then pop out. Uh, and so it's that it's that repellent force that allows it to happen. Then I've developed what was fun is I developed a bunch of derivative technologies from it. So everything from guns that use that as a mechanism to to push a bullet down a barrel to anti gravity where you put plates not on the floor that pull you down but in the ceiling that push you down. Uh, you know, those are the kind of technologies that would naturally arise from something like that. So it gives you some fun to be able to do those kind of things. Cool, cool. Well, I highly recommend this series, uh, the Casimir Bridge series of novels from Darren Beyer. And uh, with that, I think we've kind of covered everything we were going to cover, and we've run out of time at the same time. It always goes by way too fast. It does. I can't believe how fast 34 minutes goes. Wow. Thank you for joining me. It's been a fun discussion. Uh, thanks for having me back again. So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish and write you love notes. Sure thing. So my website is darrenbeyer.com, D-A-R-R-E-N-B-E-Y-E-R. And from there, you can get links to everything, including uh, my books. I've got two, as, as we mentioned, two, two fiction books on Amazon. I've also got two nonfiction books that are free. Um, one of them is called Out There, which is the 10 most likely places we'll find life in the solar system. Uh, and then I've got another one that I give away for free for signing up for my email list on my uh, on my website. And that one, uh, it talks about um, some cool technologies that are changing the way we uh, explore the solar system. Cool. Well, as before, I will put the link to your website in the show notes so listeners can find it real quick. And listeners, I'm really glad you came by, and I hope you enjoyed the show with Darren Beyer. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.